Welcome to the Peds Ethics Podcast, where we talk to leaders in pediatric bioethics about a hot topic or current controversy. Here's your host, John Lantos, from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center in Kansas City. Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is John Lantos from the Children's Mercy Bioethics Center at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. We're doing a series of pediatric bioethics podcasts, and we're thrilled today to have with us Dr. Nathaniel Beers, who is a general pediatrician and a uh, developmental and behavioral pediatrician. He specializes in the care of children with complex needs, with special health care needs, and he's also president of the HSC Healthcare System in Washington, D.C. He's been thinking a lot about COVID and particularly around the issues that surround questions about schools and schools reopening in the fall. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Beers. It's my pleasure to be with you today. I know you were involved with the American Academy of Pediatrics working group or task force that put together a statement about schools reopening. Could you tell us a little bit about that effort and your role in it? I serve on the executive committee for the Council of School Health. I'm one of the members uh, that came together with experts from the Council on School Health, as well as uh, the uh, Committee on Infectious Disease, as well as the Council on Children with Disabilities, the section on developmental behavioral pediatrics, uh, the section on environmental health, uh, among others, who all came together to uh, try and help put out guidance for pediatricians and parents and school districts uh, on how to think about uh, safely reopening schools for in-person learning. Uh, what we noted was that many school districts were moving quickly forward uh, with plans for next school year, trying to uh, eliminate all risk of COVID transmission but not taking into account all the additional risks that uh, not having children in school have on children. Um, and so we felt it was really important to help people uh, start to balance the risks of controlling spread of COVID, as well as uh, ensuring that the other services that children receive besides just the educational services are part of the conversation uh, when we are thinking about how to safely reopen schools. So it was a broad and multidisciplinary group. When did the group start their work? So we actually first started uh, in March uh, and we released a, a first set of guidance in March uh, that was uh, much more general uh, and focused on, on how to keep kids safe during the pandemic in schools uh, and came back together in June and over a two-week period pulled together the most recent guidance that's, that's come out. And in fact, the group is back together again, uh, providing an update that should come out in the next week or two. And as you went through this uh, now five-month process, what, what were the trickiest issues, in your opinion, that the group had to deal with? As I noted on the second guidance, right, it was really important for us to help highlight the inequities uh, that exist in our society and the unequal impact COVID has had 
on different communities, particularly if we look at Black and Latinx communities, and uh, how do we acknowledge that not only has disease had a disproportionate impact on those communities, but the ramifications for school closure have also had a differential impact on those communities. And so uh, as we stepped through the process of trying to capture that uh, uh, inequity uh, and think together with uh, schools and parents about how we could put out guidance uh, that would be helpful for them in, in moving the conversation forward. Uh, the challenges of uh, all the different opinions and different variables uh, that exist uh, were really critical. The most important that got lost early on in the conversation when we released the most recent guidance was uh, that it needs to be done safely and that uh, we have to take into account uh, community transmission rates as part of the variables that we think about as we think about safely uh, returning to in-person instruction. So many issues here. I want to come back to community transmission rates, but could you just elaborate a little bit on the socioeconomic and racial disparity issue? How, how does that play out? when looking at the implications of opening or closing a school in a poor community versus a more affluent community? You start at the very basics, right? And sort of what's the physical plant of the school, right? And so as, as uh, poor communities are then less able to invest uh, in the physical infrastructure in their schools, uh, you look at the ability to uh, have enough space to ensure that students can physically distance from each other uh, and safely return uh, due to class sizes in the physical class size, but also in the number of students that are in a class. Uh, you look at uh, the uh, heating and air conditioning systems and the, uh, the level of uh, air transfer that occurs and the ability that school systems have been able to invest in those. Uh, has been certainly impacted based on the wealth of communities. And then you start looking at other factors. Certainly, uh, we know that many school systems tried to provide food uh, for students who uh, would normally be on free and reduced lunch, um, and yet that uh, is a challenge when students are not in school. Uh, and so certainly we know the impact of uh, inadequate nutrition on children's ability to attend to learning, um, as well as to be able to retain the learning that they've done. And then you look as well at the digital divide uh, and the, the issues around access to adequate devices to be able to do virtual learning, as well as uh, access to uh, the uh, internet uh, and Wi-Fi capacity uh, to be able to do that learning. And that certainly uh, impacts our poorer communities, but uh, also our uh, Black and Latinx communities more substantially uh, than our white communities. So as I'm thinking about it, it seems the digital divide would push us towards more likelihood or stronger recommendation to open schools physically in poor communities, but the overcrowding and the inadequate facilities would push us away from it. Yes, they are competing data points when we're trying to think about how to do this and how to do this safely and put a great tension on many school districts, as well as many families in thinking about what is going to be safe for, for them 
and the teachers as well in what they think uh, can be safely done for them to make sure that the teachers are also safe. So it seems like there cannot be any one-size-fits-all on this, that each district will have to assess its physical facility, its uh, students and families' access to broadband, as well as perhaps prevalence rates in the community. Exactly. And I think there has been a a lot of requests since we've released our guidance for us to come out with some more prescriptive measures about uh, what disease burden would allow you to open or not open. And yet uh, that is only one piece of this puzzle. And so uh, giving that prescription about community transmission rates does not acknowledge all of the other critical steps that have to be in place. Uh, in order to ensure that we can do this in a safe manner um, and uh, support all the needs of the staff, the students, the families, and the community at large. Let me shift focus just a little bit to talk about the scientific evidence base for making recommendations. What sort of data did you have? Did you use data from other countries? Were there studies from other outbreaks of different viruses? How did you try to gather the evidence that grounded your recommendations? As I jump into that, what I will say is that one of the most important things from my perspective that we reminded people is that the plans need to be flexible and nimble because the evidence does continue to change and continue to update. And so um, when we were looking at this data in June, uh, we definitely uh, reviewed data from other countries, Uh, as well as uh, data that we were able to glean from jurisdictions here in the United States. You know, and I think the data that helped us feel like uh, it was uh, uh, reasonable for us to push towards in-person learning was uh, the increasing evidence that shows that um, children are less likely to get disease They are less likely to get complications from disease, and they are less likely to spread disease. Now, since we've released that, there's been additional data that's come out, much of which has supported those statements. There is, however, uh, several data points that require a little more nuance uh, that we will be addressing in our next round of guidance, which is uh, certainly the study from South Korea, as well as the, the mounting evidence from Israel, Uh, suggest that uh, adolescents, in particular in the South Korea study, that cutoff line was above 10, do seem to be able to spread disease more uh, frequently than younger children and more like an adult. That being said, uh, those are small data sets, and there's some confounding variables, certainly when you look at the data from Israel, which is that... uh, while they initially had relatively good control of community spread, the speed at which they opened the broader community created additional spread in the community. And when that happened, we did see uh, increased rates in schools as well as the broader community. There's not necessarily a correlation um, between opening schools and, and the increased numbers of students who had it versus the broader community piece that people uh, seem to be feeling like is a stronger uh, correlation uh, for the reason we saw increased cases. But most of those cases were in Israel were at the middle and high school level, again, reinforcing this 
um, belief that the spread between adolescents and from adolescents to adults uh, does seem to be stronger than for younger children. And what do we know about whether younger children are getting infected but just remain asymptomatic and not transmitting the virus? There's some evidence uh, that suggests uh, that um, that they are less likely to get the disease, even being asymptomatic. But, but again, there have not been wide-scale studies that have done significant testing of asymptomatic individuals um, at this point. And certainly in the United States, we are largely only testing individuals if they have symptoms or if they have known exposures. Now, the studies that do look at the asymptomatic children still uh, reinforce that even those children who have been asymptomatic uh, are not likely spreaders of that disease. Um, And so uh, those continue to be sort of data that we need to continue uh, to uh, gain more understanding about as we move forward in this. So you mentioned uh, South Korea and Israel as examples where problems have arisen. Are, are there examples of countries where schools have been open without problems? Uh, there's actually many examples of schools that have been open without problems. And I would say that South Korea is not a problem, but rather sort of they've done a really good job of collecting data. And they actually did not have increased numbers of children getting disease or spreading disease, uh, but they did a great job of looking at at children as index cases in a household and whether or not they spread that disease to other members of their household. And so uh, what we know about schools is that uh, in uh, China, as well as uh, Taiwan and Singapore, uh, in uh, Germany, France, Denmark, Austria, that they have been able to reopen schools uh, when they had uh, control of community spread. Um, and they have not seen subsequent increases in community spread due to school reopening. And so uh, those certainly uh, are schools where they uh, put in place uh, good measures around face coverings as well as physical distancing. Uh, There's some range, some of them use six feet, some of them use three feet, uh, but none of them saw Uh, substantial increases in community spread due to the reopening of schools. And are there areas of the United States that look like those countries in terms of uh, community prevalence? There certainly are, though those numbers have been getting smaller and smaller with the recent increases in cases that we've seen around the country. Um, But there still are somewhere in the sort of 15 to 20 states that uh, have Uh, community spread at a rate that's consistent with uh, what those countries were experiencing and where they were able to effectively reopen schools. So we may end up with quite a patchwork uh, of policies across the United States uh, based either on prevalence rates or politics or preferences of key stakeholders. How do we study this? How will we know what what's working and what's not? Does the academy have plans or do you know if any other agencies are going to do some research on this? I do know that there's a group out of Johns Hopkins uh, who has been doing uh, some analysis of those state plans 
they uh, have been looking at uh, 12 different areas of guidance that they were looking for schools to have. Uh, they are, they've done an initial pass on all of those uh, plans, uh, just uh, commenting on whether or not the states had those areas covered in their plans. Uh, they are now doing a qualitative analysis of the quality of those uh, recommendations that they've made in each of those areas. Um, but I do think that that is going to be a, a, a group that is looking hard at, an, at what we are seeing uh, relative to that. There is another group out of Harvard uh, that has also been a very closely monitoring uh, states' plans and, and uh, as well as the disease burden together. Um, and I think uh, will be another uh, space for us to rely on for good, high-quality data uh, about what is going on in different jurisdictions and, and what we can ex extrapolate from, from those uh, plans uh, as we continue to move forward. We in the American Academy of Pediatrics will not be doing the primary data collection, but rather we'll be relying on other sources um, and pulling those together. We will continue to update our guidance based on a new data um, on a monthly basis for as long as it, it's relevant for us to be doing that. Uh, one last question. There's a group that seems to me to be key in implementation of many of the policies, and that's school nurses. School nurses in many places uh, were, there weren't enough to go around. It was inadequately funded. What do you see their role in all of this as being, and do we have enough of them? I think school nurses are a critical part of our public health infrastructure, and much like the rest of our public health infrastructure, we have chosen to underinvest as a country and as local jurisdictions generally. Um, there are areas of the country which have invested in school nursing, uh, and they will be better positioned uh, to be able to uh, effectively reopen schools um, by having uh, staff in place with health expertise uh, who can help them assess the symptoms of children and staff uh, in the building, but also to help them um, manage all of the screenings and additional uh, processes that need to be put in place from a health perspective. What we know, because when the American Academy of Pediatrics released uh, its guidance around the fact that every school should have a school nurse, um, uh, we know that that is not the case in many uh, jurisdictions and that many jurisdictions may have uh, one school nurse for the whole school district, uh, if they're lucky. Um, but certainly, uh, we know that uh, if we are going to be able to effectively uh, trace uh, contacts uh, in schools, if we're going to be able to uh, ensure that uh, students uh, are getting tested if they need to get tested because of symptoms uh, and that uh, people are self-isolating as needed, uh, we are going to need to invest in the public health infrastructure uh, in order to make that possible. Uh, and so uh, it's certainly an area for us to uh, evaluate how we we do currently, and then I think the hope that we have uh, as well is that it will help us understand the long-term value of school nurses uh, in helping uh, students be able to attend school as well as stay in school. 
Well, this has been uh, incredibly informative, and I really appreciate all the work you're doing. And do you have any final comments or things I didn't ask that you'd like to talk about? The only thing that I would would say uh, that that we really need to continue to keep our eye on as well as the other sort of public health issue that is coming out of COVID, which is uh, the falling number of children who are receiving their uh, childhood vaccines in a timely way. And it's really critical uh, that during this period of time over the next month, as schools get ready to restart, whether that is in-person or virtual, that families are getting the vaccines that they need uh, to ensure that we don't have an outbreak of another disease because people are under immunized. Uh, and so uh, that is critical, as well as making sure that people receive their influenza vaccine this fall, um, because we know the symptoms of COVID and influenza are so similar. And we know that there are cases uh, that have shown that you can ha have both uh, viruses at the same time. And so the more we can, can do to reduce the spread of influenza during this uh, winter season, uh, the better off we are going to be uh, in managing the COVID pandemic. Very important point, and thank you very much. I've been talking to Dr. Nathaniel Beers, a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who is president of the HSC healthcare system in Washington, D.C. I'm John Lantos from Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Thanks so much, Dr. Beers, for uh, talking to us today.